Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. Before we get into our talk today, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Bart P., Uranium Cranium, at Uranium Insider, Eric K., Seth S., Levi B., and at IMMPRIM. Mark Henderson is our guest today. Mark is president and CEO of Laramide Resources, a U.S. and Australia-focused uranium explorer and developer advancing a number of projects at different stages. The company is listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol LAM and on the Australian Securities Exchange under the symbol LAM on the U.S. OTC markets under the symbol LMRXF. Mark, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. I'm happy, pleased to be here, and thanks for uh, the invitation to come on your show today. Mark, so you've been uh, with Laramide since uh, 1995. Why are you still here, and what is the plan with Laramide for this kind of cycle 2.0? Very, very good question. It's, uh, sorry that you reminded me of the longevity of this and how long I've been in the uh, in the game, if you will, we initially weren't a uh, uranium company when when we started. We were a gold company, and we ultimately, uh, as we got focused on uranium, spun off the gold in in 08 into a separate company into a separate company that's now developing a project. We're just in the late stage permitting process in uh, in Ontario, but we sort of caught the uranium bug really in 2004 or five when we had the opportunity to buy the Westmoreland project in Aus- in Australia, and that's sort of what set us on our way because it, it was uh, you know very very quality, very large scale asset. And we were kind of at the right time in that gigantic boom in the mid 2000s that, that, that swept up a lot of people. I had known about uranium because ex-colleague of mine had actually turned me on to the whole um, nuclear power business. What had happened in the United States in the 1970s with the uranium boom uh, when America built all their plants. And so we had a little company, actually, believe it or not, in the late 1990s that we were you know, founders and shareholders in called Anaconda Uranium. And we assembled some of these assets that, that are still around around today and had a little and had a little foray into uranium in sort of the ninety seven, ninety eight period, which was another period of time when there was a little mini boom going on in, in uranium. So we sort of understood, you know, how the business worked and the nature the nature of uh the assets that were that were the were the things that you wanted to be involved in and what have you. So that so when when it came around again and we could see the signs developing, particularly in with China basically going going full bore into the uranium business, we kind of we kind of jumped in with both feet in in sort of 2004 or five. Had we known obviously that we were going to live through this eight year bear market, we might have made some different decisions. But you know, time will tell. We're we're excited now because I think we've 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 paid our dues. We're through the worst of it. And I think as probably a lot of people on your show and listeners on your show understand, you know, the thesis is set up here for for a pretty interesting ride probably here in the next, you know, five to seven years once this thing turns. And give us give us your background, Mark. Uh, kind of tell the audience who maybe is not familiar with you. Give us kind of your background and and uh, what you've been up to throughout your career. Well, so I'm a business financial guy. I, I came into this whole resource business. Honestly, my family had some involvement in it, in it, and so I've been in it, you know, almost continuously from the start of my my career. I have an economics background and a CFA. I've been involved in some other 
companies that have been successful, including uh, a company called MindFinders that ultimately developed a big gold project in uh, Mexico. We also had a big gold-silver thing called Aqualine uh, back in the last decade as well that ended up being involved in the world's largest silver discovery called Navidad in, in South America and Argentina, and that got sold to Pan American Silver about a decade ago for six, seven hundred million dollar range. So we've sort of we've been we've been serial kind of entrepreneur developers of of these kind of assets. Um and as I said, you know, had we known the uranium business was gonna be this long of a of a developing story, you know, we might have made some different decisions. But having said that, I think ultimately, you know, I'm very excited about the caliber of what we own and about the potential here because one of the things that differentiates um, this particular sector vis-a-vis all these other commodity sectors and, and what have you is there's very few players in it now, and there's really very few assets that matter. And so, you know, we think we own some of those, and so we're pretty excited about it. So tell us tell us about, you mentioned some of the, the successes there uh, with MindFinders and uh, the other company there that with the silver deposit, Navidad, which Pan American has now. Um, tell us, can you tell us about maybe where some failures came in and what you learned about those? Yeah, failures. I don't. It's more. The, it's more the things take too long to to happen. It's just they're just very long in developing. We. I tend to, in my career, I tend to because I'm a business guy. I've tended to align myself with what I consider to be smart technical people. I haven't done a lot of uh, projects, and the projects that I have tended to be involved in are ultimately producing at some scale. If is anything maybe that I should have taken more swings of the bat, if you will, uh, in terms of doing some things. And some of the things have ended up being maybe smaller than you'd like, but by and large, and they've taken longer than they should have. But that's sort of the nature of the beast when you're involved in in developing commodity-related assets. Right, absolutely. And I want to ask you this a little bit more in, in the view of Laramide. So the, the company went through the last cycle, and here it is again today. Tell, tell us how. Tell us what strategies you use to try to uh, preserve the company all the way until today to set it up yet again. Um, well, that, that's a that's a good question. I think part of what sort of allowed us to be, be what I call part of the survivor group. You know, if you if people that listen to your show must know these stocks pretty well, and you know, we had a crazy boom that we were on almost from the beginning. You know, when we started, we were one of when we started back in 0405, we were probably one of I don't know 10, 12, 15 companies around that were involved in uranium. And by the time that thing was over, we were at some number like six or seven hundred, you know, between the ASX and the TSX and and, and uh, AIM over in London and, and what have you. And then we've we've kind of winnowed down in the other direction back to where we're, we're what I call the survivor group. You know, we're, we're down to sort of probably 25 companies. But because we had involvement at the time, we were never like my personally was never solely only involved in this in this one particular company, which was fortunate. So. I think you sort of have to be involved and have your hand in a few different things if you're in the resource development business, just because it is, you know, it goes through these bear markets that last a long time. So we were fortunate that we had investments in some other things. And so, you know, we had actually, Laramide had an investment in Aquiline. We had an investment in this gold thing that got spun off. We had an investment in a thing called Con, which actually, if you sort of talk about things that were quote unquote failures, I don't know if I'd put that totally in the failure basket. I mean, we had an adventure in Mongolia involving a uranium asset was a, that was a very good asset, actually, called Dornod, that ultimately got expropriated by the Mongolian government, and we, we 
you had to go through a long process basically to get paid out on that. And we, we, the irony of it is we sort of ultimately got back exactly what we put in over a very long period of time. And so, you know, you, you learn a lot from that, but we had a big investment in that. And so we, we had a number of things that allowed us to get some other capital in other than by constantly taking dilution because, you know, eight years of, of uh, not a lot of optimism makes it difficult to, to raise capital. And also the capital markets, the nature of the capital markets have, have changed pretty dramatically, I would say, in the last 10 or 15 years in terms of, you know, where you can source money for these types of projects. The, you know, the active investors that just invest in resource names and things like that, it's really changed dramatically in the last, you know, 10 years or so with the rise of passive and ETFs. And so we've done a little bit of everything basically to survive. You know, we had assets, we sold some, we raised a little bit of money opportunistically, we turned the burn rate way down. It was basically a little bit of everything in order to get to this place. Now we still, the cap structure has obviously expanded um, over that period of time. I mean, we, this was a company that had a $700 million market cap, something like that in 06, 07, probably with 50 or 60 million shares out. You know, it's now got 130 million shares out roughly. But I would say today, actually, ironically, the I would say the asset base of the company today is better than it was in 07. I mean, certainly we're farther along in the project development. We own this asset in the United States that we didn't own then that's very promising and, and very substantial. So it's really been about just trying to get to the to the other, uh, you know, to the light at the end of the tunnel. So that's sort of we, we decided early on when the 12 to 18 month penalty box idea that how long we were going to be after Fukushima didn't work out. You know, we had a, and you've seen we've had a number of false starts on the spot price and on the on the whole inventory imbalance issue getting resolved. And so every after every one of those false starts you just you just start to understand that you need to find a way to get to the other side of the valley and then that so everything's kind of been driven around that. But at the same time, we decided that we wanted to come out of the other side of the valley stronger than we went in. And I think we've been able to, to do that here in the last couple of years because we were able to go and, and acquire Church Rock, you know, where we, we we just used to be a royalty holder on that asset. So we knew the asset. At this point in time, we now own the asset. So, Yeah, no, that's that's good. Good stuff. And I appreciate your your uh, your comments on that. So I want to move on. Section 232. What's your take on outcome? Uh, hard to hard to speculate on that. I mean, I do think whatever happens directionally, it's got to be positive for certainly for the uranium price because even if they don't do anything, I think the consensus is that there's a lot of pent up utility buying that needs to happen that hasn't happened because people are unsure what the rules are going to be. So we do we do need clarity. I do think that if they have spent this much time studying it and went to the trouble to put a report out that the report is recommending something that's constructive for the industry, because I think you might've heard something about it if it was otherwise. So I think we're going to get something that is going to be helpful. I think it, at, at a bare minimum, I think it's going to be helpful to put a spotlight on our, you know, quite small sector and what the issues and challenges are around delivering supply into the market. So I think from that standpoint, it's got to be positive. You know, when we talk about the small number of companies that are left in the space, there's an even smaller set, subset of companies that are involved in American assets. So, we, and, we, and we're in that sort of select group. So, I, I do think, obviously, we're optimistic about it. But I don't know. I've, you know, we've heard, we've heard the range of things from quotas to tariffs and stuff like that. So, I've, I, I'm I'm hopeful that they do something that's that's targeted and effective. So, global uranium supply uh, demand dynamics. Uh, 
when do you see the breaking point and where do you see the price of uranium going? You shouldn't make predictions, especially about the future. I'm a little reluctant to, obviously we think it's going to be, I mean, it has to be higher. I mean, the industry leaders are telling you it has to be higher or there is no future production coming. Eventually the, the well is going to run dry on, on inventories, but, but it's been a mugs game to pick that. I mean, and I think we were all wrong, you know, coming out of Fukushima, everyone was, oh, it'll be 12 or 18 months. And then it was a lot longer. And then we've at the beginning of every year, there seemed to be a lot of optimism and sort of, you know, 2016, 17. I, I think people have given up predicting when it's going to happen. I think there's a very big consensus that it has to happen. It will happen. Um, you know, the demand, the demand is all out there and, and calculable. So it, it's sort of inevitable, but what year it's going to be or what month, I, I don't know. You know, you need a catalyst. You need, because of the nature of, of the demand side of it, the inventories or the utilities have a lot of a lot of discretion and a lot of flexibility about when they need to buy, when they need to contract. You know, they, they could suddenly take their inventories from two years to four years, and you need something like that to happen. That's that that's what happened in you know in the period from '09 to, to right before Fukushima in 2011. That was effectively the Chinese just making a unilateral decision that it was a very good time to accumulate inventory, and they almost single-handedly took the price from 40 to 70 in what was a relatively short period of time. So. I, I think it's going to be something like that that starts with something we're not sure. Maybe it'll be 232. And then I think once you get this ball in motion, I think you're going to have a period of time that that is certainly going to be a reasonable period of time where I think investors are going to be pretty happy they're, they're involved in the space. So, Mark, give us your approach as to how you look at uranium from a, an investor perspective. Uh, tell us how you might uh, structure your uranium portfolio if you're a, re a retail investor, and how would you how would you approach that if if you're speaking to investors and you're looking at the space and you're seeing these couple companies out there? What would you what kind of wisdom would you pass along to the retail investor about how to maybe structure a uranium portfolio to enjoy the the, the coming cycle? Uh, well, we hate to get into sort of investment recommendations and talking too much about um, other companies. I mean, our, our our company was, you know, our company was set up to be a, a supplier of choice to the to the nuclear industry, and you know, we have these very big chunky assets that that effectively can can do that, you know, somewhat on a contracted basis potentially with utilities and what have you. The flip side of it for in, for investors looking at it is they're you know, they're sort of interested in the outcome of what these kind of companies are going to do and whether they're going to produce and and what have you. But the uranium sector, compared to other commodities, like let's say copper or gold, is incredibly highly correlated to that one number, which is the spot price. And so you in the gold sector, for example, like Newmont or, or Barrick tend not to be correlated with microcap juniors that are developing assets. But in uranium, you really do have that phenomenon where the chemicals and the and the laramides are almost moving in tandem, typically off the spot price. And I, particularly at, at times when the spot price is effectively out of the money and you can't make development decisions about the actual assets. So I think the macro matters a lot more at this particular juncture than, than the micro or the fundamentals of these individual companies. So I think in terms of putting a basket together, it tends to be more about maybe what the bait is, is involved of these various companies coming off the bottom of the market. Like if I was going to, just from a macro standpoint, I would be interested in companies that, you know, maybe you take a, a 
producer and a mid-cap and a, and a smaller company. But so, to some degree, it's more important about maybe how they trade in terms of volume and, and that sort of thing, because the stocks are highly correlated. And I do think between here and, let's say, $40, um, I wouldn't say throw a dart, but I think the first phase of this thing coming off the bottom of the bear market, I think, you, you know, you, you, you're going to do pretty well almost irrespective of which of these. I mean, I'm talking the names that everybody knows about the names maybe that are in the ETFs and things like that. You're going to do pretty well in all of those names. And I think once you get a little deeper into this, I think the fundamentals are going to matter more where people's projects are jurisdictionally is going to matter more, where they are on the cost curve the scale, how how they're able, going to be able to execute on bringing these projects into the market. That's going to matter a lot more further down the track. But I think initially, uh, that's no, probably not going to matter as much as you nor You need to spend less time studying the fundamentals of these companies than you normally would in a typical investment in the junior commodity space. I don't know if that's helpful. Or not. I don't really particularly want to get into any names, but I think sure. that's a good guide to, to how to approach it. Yes. Yeah. And I think, I think you, uh, you, you, you covered it well. Uh, you know, people should look at the, uh, the various stages, you know, the, uh, discovery, maybe stage companies, and of course, uh, you know, the, the development stage, the producing stage, and maybe some physical funds, you know, that maybe hold uranium and, and maybe look at a blue chip like Cameco. I mean, there's, there's a number of ways to kind of structure that, that mix, uh, in the sector. And so I, I think, yeah, I think you kind of hit on that for people and, uh, we appreciate the info. So I want to talk Laramide, uh, specifically the structure, capital structure of the company. Can you give us the shares outstanding uh, more or less at this moment? And then also, can you tell us about the ownership of those shares? Sure, Andrew. So we're, I think where I think I mentioned earlier, we're about, I think we're about 130 million shares out now. Uh, I own about 10%. I think the insider group owns between, you know, 10 and 14%. Um, there's some big chunky ownership out of, um, U.S. Family Office Hedge Fund that owns another 10. We've got some smaller funds and what have you, um, probably Australia, Europe, places like that, that own another almost 10%. Uh, and then you probably have a lot of, by and large, the rest of it's probably retail. And give us the uh, the give us the info on cash in the bank, expected cash burn for 2019, and then also if there's any financings coming up and, and how you plan to handle company debt. Uh, well, the one piece of debt that's out there is we have a convertible debt uh, that's convertible at 60 cents. The stock price now is about 40. That's not convertible till 2021. That is it. That is held by the hedge fund family office, effectively. That's one of our biggest shareholders and supporters. So. You know, we don't regard that as anything particularly. We ex would expect that in the ordinary course to just be converted. Uh, it has a 7% coupon, so it's not particularly expensive. Uh, and then cash, we've let the cash run down a fair bit ahead of this 232, partly because, and there, and so there will be some kind of a financing done here in sometime in 2019, ideally post the 232 decision, which we're, I guess we're a couple weeks into the, the timeline that they have available to them, partly because we really want to see clarity around um, that outcome, and partly because if that outcome goes in certain directions, um, you may have an interesting scenario where the U.S. utilities that sort of haven't typically been a source of capital for the for the Iranian business, um, you know, there may be something interesting to be done there, and we don't want to 
foreclose on any of our options. And we had a, we also in the run up to this 232, we've had a lot of um, interest from a lot of different players. And so we really don't want to do anything on a very we'd rather do something more meaningful on the back of a understanding what the landscape is than do something small, which is how we've been the other way we've been getting through the last few years. We've been tending to do smaller placements. And so the cash balance is much lower than maybe people would like to normally see. But incrementally, it hasn't really, really mattered. And we've always had we've always had access to capital. So the the cash right now is, you know, under a million dollars. But the, we're not too worried about that because we've we've got and we have had for the last six months, particularly since this 232 thing kicked in, we've had an awful lot of inbound offers of financing on one sort of so something's going to get put together, but I, I, in a perfect world, it'll get put together post 232. And give us the the management team. Tell us about some of the key folks there at Laramide. So it's a very small team. So myself, the number, the other folks, folks other than myself that are really key. We've got a couple of, of uh, pretty important guys down in the U.S. that are really all on sort of consulting type arrangements that have, that have deep deep experience in in the uranium business, including on the permitting side. Uh, Mark Politz is a, an individual who's very, very important on the on the permitting side because he was involved in all of the history with the uh, NRC license at Church Rock, et cetera. So he's come and joined our, our team. And then our, our chief operating officer is a gentleman named Bryn Jones in Australia. And he is a chemical engineer by background and ran the original Beverly ISR uranium mine in South Australia. And so we have the expertise essentially in place when the time comes to to you know build these projects, it'll effectively be a matter of sort of scaling up from from a very small team to a much bigger team when market conditions permit. So we never, because of the nature of of where we were in the cycle, we never sort of got scaled up to build uh, something. So we never had a big team that had to get shrunk. We basically had a pretty pretty small core team all along. Uh, but it, but it's a it's a highly experienced team, and that includes the people that are on the board of directors. We just added a gentleman named Rafi Babicki into the board of directors, and he's an ex-Ariva corporate development guy, ex-Uranium investment banker, and also as a director of Fission. And so we think we have a small core group of people that, that are the right skill set and set of experience and everything to kind of go hard at this once conditions are right. And and Bren Jones, uh, so he is involved with DevEx, uh, Salt Lake Potash, and Foss Energy, which Cameco has a 75% partnership there. With Cameco, we know that Gitzel sits on the board of Mosaic. Uh, what is what is Bren doing uh, at Laramide, and what are your thoughts about recovering uranium from phosphate and fertilizer production operations? Uh, well, on that latter, I mean, I'm no expert on it. Bryn's obviously been involved in it. I mean, it's a joint venture with Cameco. It was their initiation to start that is my understanding of it. It's quite interesting, that it, and it has been done before. So what people need to understand is it's not really new. They put a new twist on something that had been done for quite a long period of time. The Florida phosphates used to produce, I believe, something, I think this is in the 90s, they used to produce on the order of 3 million pounds a year. From some of those Florida projects, and so I think what they've done is basically a, a a new twist on the old process that they've somehow managed to patent. And I think there's a lot of potential for uranium to be extracted from phosphate, you know, if conditions were right. But you obviously need a big phosphate deposit that you have access to in order to in order to do that. 
you know, whether that happens or not, who, who, who knows? Okay. But, you know, it's an interesting project. I mean, the, that's, the, that's the thing about uranium. And I think that compared to some of the other commodity or mining, if you will, um, sectors, you know, people sort of don't appreciate necessarily the various different methodologies where all of this uranium comes from. You know, we produce, I don't know, 130, 40 million pounds a year. And it comes from a variety of things. Some of them, you know, you have the one extreme, you have the incredible high grade stuff in Saskatchewan. You know, at the other extreme, you have 70 PPB coming out of Olympic Dam as byproduct, and there's 10 million pounds a year or whatever. So, and in between, you have Kazakhstan that makes all of their uranium out of moving water around solution mining in Kazakhstan. So, it's it, it's very it's very uh, broader, much broader than like say the gold business, where you know you have open pit mines and you have underground mines. Right. And so the phosphate is, you know, you can make uranium out of seawater if you have to. Sure, sure, absolutely. And I, we know that we know that's an expensive process, and and it's unlikely to happen anytime soon on that side. But on on this, given given it's a a byproduct coming out of existing phosphate operations, what what would it take a company to kind of outfit to recover the uranium? And do you see at these price levels, given that it is a byproduct? Do you see companies pursuing that, and do you see that as a threat to some of these really kind of a secondary supply source? I wouldn't be too worried about that. I mean, they they could be doing that now if they wanted to in Florida. I think the public acceptance optics of understanding that their fertilizer had a bunch of uranium in it is probably more challenging than than they wanna than they want to address. So I don't think in the near term that's likely to be a competitive alternative. But I mean, I, I think if you look at the fact that Cameco was involved in that project, I think if you if you follow Cameco around and and because they're you know they're the they're the class outfit in the bid in the business, the biggest company in the business, the, you know they have probably the tier one assets, the you know some of the smartest people. If if you followed them around exploration wise and look at the various things they went into, anything that looked like it could be a competitive challenge to Cameco in terms of production, they went there. So they went to Peru, they went to Paraguay, they, they're in the phosphate because it might work. They're in Silex because the global enrichment thing might produce byproduct that would be competitive to the mine. So if you look at what they did as part of a business strategy to understand what the competitive threats were, that's that's a good way to look at it. But a lot of these things, none of it's eventuated into a lot of supply yet. Maybe it will at some point in time. So I think the fact that they're there tells you, yeah, it's interesting. You better look at it. But is is any of it coming anytime soon? Doesn't look that way. I mean, the Silex scenario, the people thought that was a gigantic competitive threat, and there was a there was a time when people thought that was a looming kind of thing that was going to happen at big scale. And you know, it's just kind of fizzled. It seems like it's fizzled for the moment. And the capital cost of a lot of this stuff is is just it's not there. It's not for them to to ramp spend the money and develop infrastructure to be able to put these methods and processing uh, methods into effect uh it doesn't happen overnight and so i i don't see that any of these uh is really a concern for this cycle and the very close problem with uh supply who's going to fill that uh and who who's going to be able to to get the production out of the ground and get it to through the fuel cycle process and all over to the uh, the end user utilities and so i just don't see that any of these other 
technologies, if you will, and methods coming out and being deployed without significant capital expense and uh, really time needed to put all this stuff into uh, into place because none of it exists now as far as infrastructure on a commercial basis that's that's uh, notable. So that's my view on it. But uh, well, let's let's move on, Mark, for another one. Um, so can you share with us at what price you own your shares? And also, can you tell us how management is aligning themselves with shareholders at current prices? I really probably couldn't tell you what price I own the shares. I've, I've, I've been involved for so long and frankly, mostly been a buyer. I can't remember ever really selling any big, maybe a little bit, probably a decade ago, I sold a few shares, you know, probably in the teens. So I'm certainly not interested in selling any down here. Um, I don't know that we're going to go back into the teens, but but certainly there's no reason that we, in a better market, that we won't be back at market cap in the hundreds of millions of dollars, which would be obviously a very nice move from where we are. You know, we own I own, we I own a lot of it. I think the insiders tend to own a lot of it. I don't think we're doing anything particularly different at the moment that we've always done in terms of shareholder alignment. You know, with the folks are on modest salaries and stuff like that until industry conditions make that that make that uh, something that that uh, you can address. Um, I you know I think we're a pretty shareholder friendly company. We've never done a rollback. Uh, we've never repriced a stock option. So I think in terms of governance things, I think we're you know we we we, we tick most of the boxes that people would want to see ticked. So the company is on the TSX and the ASX with an OTC pink listing. Is there any plans to bump that OTC listing up to a QB or QX? Uh, not at the moment, Andrew. I do think the, the AXX thing was sort of a, a bit of a failed experiment, if you will. We did that 2011, 2012, you know, partly when we thought the uranium recovery would be a lot sooner than it's turned out to be. And I think we thought it would be an interesting way to access the Australian capital markets and things like that. But you find when you do these cross listings, and there's been a number of companies that have tried to do this, um, mostly coming from Australia to Toronto or going from Australia to a UK type of listing, you really need the stock to trade naturally in both places. And so it's sort of still a, a placeholder, if you will. And we're hoping at some point that we can generate and we keep the listing because we so hope at some point that we can generate um, a level of interest in Australia with investors that'll make that make sense where it kind of trades naturally, trades volume naturally and things like that. We probably realistically need to either do a financing down there or to buy another company that has a share float down there where it already has a natural shareholder base. The few companies that did it successfully, Paladin was really one of them, that went back in the day when they had a cross-listing, and, and they traded almost as much in Australia as they did in Toronto. But that was partly because, you know, John John Borshoff was sort of a tireless promoter of his company and just traveled endlessly and managed to develop a, a market without, without having to do that, without having to buy a company in Canada. And so there are ways to do it. And it's interesting. I think if you can get that market developed, it helps. We haven't suffered in being in Toronto from not being American listed. I don't think partly because there's so few names and partly because Toronto is considered to be a resource market where things trade naturally and there trades lots of volume. So at the moment, there isn't any thought of doing that. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, if you're already on the big board, which you guys are, and that's that's a nice piece, that's a nice feature of the company. From there, you really just, you know, in the right market conditions, Upgrade is really going to from there is really just going to the the New York Stock Exchange which was really in the in the midst of a bull market is would be the only time I would consider doing that. So 
I think I think it makes sense. I think you guys are pretty well set up. I just think that there's probably a couple U.S. investors that, oh, well, why isn't a QB? But I think even for the efforts to get to QB from Pink on the OTC is is probably Mark. Maybe you guys can look at it. But I think from what I understand, it's it's pretty minimal effort to get to QB status there. So we'll leave that for you to to ponder. We'll we'll, we'll look into it. We haven't done that. I mean, obviously, in in times of austerity, we we weren't looking to further expand friction costs. So you know, partly at some point in time, especially if you go full listing on these things, you know, the the friction cost of these exchanges has not has not diminished surprisingly, even though the you know, if you look at the TSX, like all of our volume used to trade on the TSX. Now if you look at it on a daily basis, there's about seven other of these exchanges, pools, whatever you want to call them, where the volume all gets split. So but the fees haven't gone down. Right. Yeah, no, it makes sense, and, it, and it's a time where everybody's well. People should be cautious with their using their their money on GNA. So, give us uh, talk about projects at Laramide. Give us just an overview, and then I want to get into a couple specifics in a moment. Yeah, so we have two big, chunky projects that we 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 think are things that are obviously going to be part of the future supply mix. You know, the the thing we initially had was and still have obviously is Westmoreland in Australia, which is a big fifty million pound you know, open pit project with a low strip ratio, very good metallurgy, um, has the potential to produce up to 5 million pounds a year. There's been num- economic, couple of different economic studies done on it um, that are, you know, that are public and 43101 available and that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a case where that that's a project that really needs permits and money and then build it. It doesn't really need any more technical information. It certainly doesn't need any more drilling. I mean, possibly if you made it bigger later, that would be interesting, but it doesn't need that. Now it has a much higher capital cost price tag, probably on that. I think it was the number on the order of three hundred million dollars U.S. the last go round. And so we're fortunate that we have this other project in the United States now, which is a ISR project called Church Rock. It also has more or less, I think, fifty million pounds on the forty-three-one numbers that were that were published last year. But it's an ISR project, and it can be scaled up sequentially. So. The initial the initial plan would be to make a you know a million pounds a year with the initial well field and then ultimately scale up to three million pounds a year. It was owned but previously by a company called URI, which is now Westwater, and they got an NRC license on it, so it has the federal permit. It just needs one aquifer injection permit in New Mexico state permit, and then it's effectively permitted, and you could and you could start building it. The benefit of that project is obviously the capital cost is an awful lot lower, probably on the order of a tenth of what. Westmoreland would cost to initially get up and running. And it's also because of the nature of it and the nature of ISR, um, you know, it's on the lower lower part of the cost curve. Westmoreland is as well on the lower part of the cost curve based on the numbers that we had. But it's a, it, it's a different thing because of the scale of it. So we have this nice situation where you can effectively start and then ultimately scale into a, a bigger a bigger situation in the United States at Church Rock. And then presumably as the cycle matures, um, and when you're cash flowing, you can you can go and address the bigger project. Give us the status on on the permitting. When do you see that getting uh, potentially fulfilled, where you guys have full permits? And then tell us about the local community there and how the community support and sentiment is going. And when do you think? Maybe give us an estimate of time. When do you think all of that would come together, uh, assuming you had a good uranium price to kind of pull the trigger? start with the latter point. So in terms of what price would you need that you would say economically you'd start getting very serious about that project, I would say probably about $40. I think it, I think you could look at a scenario where it would 
would be economically robust enough at $40 that you could get serious about it. Now, we haven't put out, unlike Westmoreland, where we've done resource calculations multiple times, a couple of different PEAs, because of the nature of the way that project came together, where we were the royalty holder, um, we bought the uh, resource and the land out from, from Westwater. And before we did that, there was an aggregation of a bunch of different properties from other companies. So the whole resource picture and the ore body all came together in a way right before we did that deal that had never happened before in the history of that project. So it had had some previous economic studies done on it that were never publicly released by URI Westwater, partly because they're an SEC filer and they weren't subject to that regime. So the missing thing for the market on on uh, Church Rock is for us to put this to put an economic study of some kind out there into the marketplace, whether it's a PA or otherwise, that also just tells people, listen, here's what it looks like, here's the production profile, uh, here are the economics. That also makes it, and I think, will assist us in our capital markets efforts because I think you know the analyst community and others they want to see something to base their models on. And right now, they don't really have enough technical information. I mean, they have the resource picture, but they don't have the technical information on the on the economic side, on the cost side, to put an economic model together. I mean, I think when people do it, they're going to be pleasantly surprised, and we're obviously going to help them in that process. But that hasn't been done yet, and that's that's a 2019 event. That's a latter half of 2019 event. So that's a big part of the picture of putting the whole thing together. On the permitting side, we're always very reluctant to talk about any kind of timeline with respect to permits because you have no control. As I said, we're down to we're down to one permit, but it, you know it's a, an important permit, and you can't build anything until you have all your permits. So we're definitely getting stuck into that process now in New Mexico in 2019 to get that last permit. You know, the goal here, the goal internally is to be shovel ready sometime next year where you would have your permits and you could go ahead. And the, the local community there, how's everything going with those folks? Well, in terms of actual communities on the ground, there really, there really aren't any, we're not near any towns or particularly, particularly with where the, the initial uh, well fields and that would be. I mean, these are all things that are kind of out in the open in Northern New Mexico. We adjoin the Navajo nation. So obviously we have to be very respectful and, and, uh, mindful of that relationship and we are you know we are trying to address that relationship that you know we, we when we were just a royalty holder we didn't have that relationship so that's a relationship that we're obviously going to work hard at, at building tell us about crown point and what are your plans are there uh, crown point would be would be a would be a secondary producer the way the, the way the project would roll out is we would definitely start at, at at church rock and they're about 25 miles apart so Crown Point is, and, and where the NRC license allows us to build a recovery facility is in Crown Point, which is which is a small community. But we would ultimately do that sometime later. So our plan would be on the initial production and on the initial well field, you know, to, ba- to basically make loaded resin and put it on trucks and take it to a uh, secondary recovery facility. And so we wouldn't have the capital costs associated either with the plant, but you would add some costs for obviously for effectively tool milling. And so that would be the nature of the plan, whether that's in phase two or phase three, ultimately we'll build our own. And we have the right to build that plant. So we do have the NRC right to build a plant in a very specific location with a very specific capacity. And we're the only ones in New Mexico that have that. But having said that, there are already a bunch of recovery facilities where, you know, if you could be doing ISR mining, you, you could take it a bunch of different places, and that's and some people are doing that. Some of the production that's happening is that's what happens to it. Including, okay. I mean, Westwater still, I believe they still have a, a permanent facility in Texas. 
And with with Church Rock, so I want to go back to that for just a moment because this is kind of the main, the kind of the first off the ground project from what I understand. So I know you haven't put a PEA out on it yet, but can you give the audience just a a rough ballpark on what you think it might be cap cost wise to get going there? Well, yeah, we're obviously pretty reluctant about doing too much to get you offside with all these various 4201 rules and everything else. But there have been Westwater had a capital number. I think that was on between 20 and $30 million. And I think anybody that looks at these things, if you do rule of thumb comparables on what it takes to, to, to build a well field, you know, a million pound a year well field, you're, you're in the ballpark. And if you look at, and, and our, and our situation, because this is a tried and true methodology that's been done a number of times on all these various USISR things, you know, starting with Camacoats stuff when they started in Nebraska. And that's the thing that's, um, Crobute, I guess it's about, 800,000 to a million pounds has been the whole time steady state. And that's the kind of scale of the thing that you're building. So there are peer group comparables that you can look at for that. And and you're, and those all get you to a number, like just for the Wellfield piece of it alone, get you to a number that's in that 25 to $30 million range. And in terms of understanding where you're going to be on the cost curve, I mean, obviously the ore body matters. So if you have an ore body that's a certain grade and a certain dimension, you know, that, that should allow you to sort of stack yourself up against the peer group comparables. And that's kind of how we do it now. If you if, if people look at what, what's in our PowerPoint, it's obviously available online and things like that. It, it's based on what does this ore body look like vis-a-vis these other ore bodies in the U.S. or whatever else. And, it, and, and in fact, the beautiful thing about church rock is, you know, it has grade that people don't tend to get excited about these grades that are, you know, start with a zero, like 0.08, 0.09. But people probably don't understand that that's what the grade is in Kazakhstan. And they seem to be doing okay. So, our grade in the U.S. is of, of our of our better quality stuff in these well fields is in that is in that ballpark. You know, it's in the 0.08 to 0.1 ballpark. And then we obviously don't have the dimensions that they have in something like the Kazakhstan in terms of what the ore body looks like. But but the dimensions are bigger than, than they are in say some of the things in Texas where you have more more um, skinny sinuous type deposit typically. Now I want to move over to Australia for a moment. So you've got the Westmoreland project and the Murphy project on the border of Northern Territories and Queensland. Now, uh, what's, what's your thoughts on what you're going to do with Murphy being in Northern Territories? And then what is your thought on Queensland as far as getting their act together at the government standpoint to allow mining of uranium? Yeah, so we Australia has been a very interesting experience because we, we've been there since before they got rid of what for a long time uranium bugs that they had this thing called the three mines policy which was a government policy it was basically there's a two-party system in in australia and for a long period of time one of the two parties was anti-uranium the labor party and they were and they were anti-uranium at a at a um, party level like the democrats would be about some issue in the united states for example and then what happened is they went away from that at a party level and then just kicked it down to individual states to whether they had a had a position on this particular issue. And so we're left with two state governments that still the part the, the, the individual labor parties in those states are still not really favorable towards uranium. And that would be Western Australia and Queensland, basically the places where the you know there's an awful lot of uranium potential. And so we tell people that what we really, you know, what we need for Australia is we need the two Ps. We need we need price and politics for the thing to 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 go ahead. And the entire time we've owned the project, we've never had the two Ps lined up at the same time. We've we've had we've had one but not the other, and we've had both off. And right now we have both off. But we did have more importantly the 
the, the political P piece of it. We had a window of time from 2012 to 2015 where, where Queensland was probably the most pro-uranium place on the planet. They went out, did a multi-hundred-page report about it and why it was a good thing and why they should develop their industry and everything else. So unless one of those two parties suddenly becomes the permanent government of Queensland, there's going to be a window when the, the, the political P is going to fall on the line for us and this is going to get done and we're going to get it permitted. That's what happened in Western Australia. They had a window where they had six years of positive politics and everything got permitted. So those projects in Western Australia are all sitting there, they're permitted, but they need, they don't have the price P. So they need, they need, and they, and because most of those things are probably higher up on the cost curve, those are going to be things that ultimately I believe will be in the supply mix long-term, but they're, they're bigger scale. They're owned by, some of them are owned by Cameco, for example. And so most of what we need to do is really just let the natural course of, of democracy work and there'll be a window of time when we'll be able to do it. We, we haven't spent a lot of time trying to change the minds of that particular Queensland government today because even if we could, what are you going to do at $25? So our focus has been on keep the asset together, make do as much as you can. And our move into the territory was partly to say, listen, the, the, everything's, on a, everything's on a low ebb. We were, we were in an opportunity where we had a joint venture with Rio Tinto on essentially the extension of that entire um, uranium district as it went into the territory that's never really been explored in any meaningful way. And we had an opportunity to buy our partner out in the, you know, which is a pretty good partner, Rio Tinto, out, out of the JV and consolidate effectively the entire district with the, playing the long view that at some point in time, this is all going to be possible. And it's probably all one big production thing at some point in time. Obviously, we could we could go to the west there and find another uranium ore body and maybe we develop it in the in the territory if we have that kind of success. So it gives you a lot of optionality on different things but just from a strictly standpoint of doing a pure uranium exploration thing if 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 a single entity company owned that that would it, that would be a pretty exciting thing to own in the right in the right uranium market. And we certainly think obviously because we're the probably the natural owner of it because we own the rest of the belt you know, the rest of the perspective geology, that, that it was a pretty smart thing to do when no one cared about it. And right. So we're excited about it, and we actually will. We're starting to quietly get our plans together to roll, there, to roll that out and to do some exploration there. There has been now a bunch of geophysical work done there, and including a an air, big airborne survey, big gravity survey. There was some stuff done at the governmental level to basically put together the whole belt technically. And so what we're doing right now, Andrew, is we're actually assembling all of that information so that we can put it in effectively like a 43101 format report. So we can tell people what the opportunity is there and what the targets are and what the recommendations are. But it's an exciting exploration um, opportunity. And and obviously, at some point in time, if there were no politics and you had um, resource on both sides of that political boundary between the NT and, and Queensland, then it would be all be one one big play. Interesting. Yeah, no, I think it's a interesting setup that, that's going on over there and, and where you've got uh, properties on both sides there. So I want to talk just long-term contracting for a moment. Can you give us any status on, on how the relationships are going with maybe a utility you're talking to? Has uh, that started yet? Uh, what's what's the thoughts on the contracting process and, and how you guys might monetize uh, when an F production commences there at uh, maybe Church Rock? Well, the, the, when we, in terms of building, putting the company together, the, the, going back, the longer-term thinking was something like a Westmoreland. You would absolutely have to have contracts that you could get contracts. I do think that the what's happened since Fukushima is the con, there's the contracting market has really changed. Um, and, and as you read Cameco's disclosure, they more or less kind of allude to that, and that you know they're having even challenges getting 
terms. So I do think there has been a change in that, and the number of players that are interested in contracting with you has probably changed. Like we always set the company up with the view that that we would be the supplier of choice for the Western utilities, you know, and there were enough of those, including Germany and and, and uh, you know Korea, France, etc., all the American players. The U.S. utilities typically like to support the industry through contracts. They got away from doing any other strategy for for utility procurement, but because they had been down the path where you know they own mines and they own pieces of mines and various other things, and so they got completely away from that and just went to where we'll just give you guys fair contracts for decent length terms. And then I think post Fukushima, they they even they sort of got away from that, and that's partly one of the things that I think has led to this whole 232 scenario and the tension between the producers and the utilities and that kind of thing. So uh, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens post 232 and where the attitude is on the on the uh, on the American utilities because they they still have scale. You know, they still have there's a lot of plants in the United States, there's a lot of pounds that need to be procured. The the in terms of our projects because Church Rock is a much smaller thing at much smaller capex, that can frankly be built without any contracts. So right. you can get you can get twenty five or thirty million dollars to build without any contracts. And the exa- the example of that was what was done with Mustaine. If this company called Mustaine, which was private in the last cycle, and they went and actually built the plant in Texas, and it cost I think twenty five million. They were actually the biggest supplier in the spot market. They were producing at one point. I think they got up to to a million or two million pounds a year, and they were just selling it at the spot market. And this is when the spot market was eighty dollars. So that was a pretty good decision. But they got the whole thing done without any contract. Got it built. Never, never, never entered into a contract. It, it may be really important over time again, but it may the, the market may evolve in a different way than than it looked in the past. And you just don't know yet. Yeah, I think it. I think it's interesting, and you certainly have a, a situation there that's that's low capex, and and uh, there's certainly some some better options uh, potentially without having to get into a long term contract. So. Why should investors be looking at uh, taking a stake in Laramide today? What would you say to potential investors in the audience? Well, I think if you're looking at that group of names that are interesting names to be in that have developed, whether you know whether it's uh, looking at a yellow cake or a U participation where you're effectively just buying the commodity. I mean, people want to buy things that, that, that have growth potential in the long run and probably in the short run, they really want the torque off the move in the uranium name. And I do think from that standpoint, in terms of our longevity, the assets that we own, you know, Laramide in the uranium business is, is a, I don't want to call it a brand name, but it's a well-known name. It does trade when the spot market moves up, the, the stock performs. So in terms of the beta, if you will, to the, to the, to the thesis of uranium, I think we probably have a very high beta. And, and I think backing that up is we have a company that really has been put together with the view of it will be a, a meaningful supplier to the uranium business in the long term. And we own projects that do matter. And, but I, I think by and large, for most of the guys that are left, all those projects in one form or another at some, in some timeline are all probably going to be part of the future supply mix, you know, including those big huge projects, obviously, that everybody knows about in Saskatchewan. That's one thing we didn't really talk about. But uh, in terms in terms of, and that, and that really all plays together with this whole idea about contracting that you asked about, the scale of what you're doing things at is going to matter because the market is going to get healthier, but it, it's not going to go from 150 million pounds or whatever was produced last year to, to 220 in a really short period of time. It's going to take a while for that to evolve. And the market can only, and Cameco is basically out there chattering about this now all the time about 
oh, the thing you should worry about is look at all the stuff that's offline that can come online quickly. And then when you get into that discussion, you have to look at, well, what are the things that are, once we get past that, what are the things that are going to come online? And at what scale are they going to come online? So the thing I do think where we are very well positioned is we could come online at a scale that doesn't need a crazy uranium price and isn't going to be the least bit disruptive to the uranium market. We bring a million right. pounds here on a church rock. It's just no one's even going to know we did it. We don't have to run around. We don't have to get hundreds of millions of financing. We don't have to get contracts that underpin everything because, you know, if you produce a million pounds a year, you can just sell it into the spot market. If you're going to produce 20 million pounds a year, you, you pretty much have to have an idea what you're going to do with it. Right. No, that's a good point. Um, you know, if you have a 20 million pound operation uh, per year and, and uh, you're going to destroy the spot market if, if you've got that, if you're looking to dump all that into the spot. So no, I think I think that's good points, and I wanted to actually ask you. Uh, you you brought it up. What do you think of the hopefuls uh, in the Athabasca Basin? You've got a couple there that that have some sizable projects, but uh, what's your thoughts on really the kind of the timeline, and and can they really put it together all the way through uh, production to cake in a can over to the utilities? Oh, those are going. Oh, those are great discoveries and and great assets. I mean, they're and they're clearly going to be online at some point in time. I mean, at some scale, no question about it. It's just it's just a matter of what the sequence is going to be. So that that's kind of the thing. If you took the matrix of all these companies, and and we and we fast forward in twenty years or twenty five years, you'll find that probably all these things are have been brought online, and they were brought online at some level of production. Maybe they scale up, the bigger ones scale up sequentially kind of thing. But we, I mean, the market needs all of those assets. You know, the, every time they turn a power plant on in China, it's got a 60-year life, you know? there's And there's only a few guys left in the business on the buy side that are thinking, yeah, I have a 60-year thing I got to worry about here. What am I doing about it? A, wh a whole lot of the industry is going I have this asset. Maybe I'm going to close it. I'm not sure. I'm retiring in two years, so it'll be my successor's problem, you know. So I, I think anybody that owns a decent uranium asset is going to do very well over certainly over the longer term because this imbalance is, you know, it's got to get addressed in some fashion. And and the demand didn't stop. This isn't a sunset industry. I mean, if anything, the last. 12 months and really the last six months, you've seen a lot of announcements that suggest that this industry could go back to being, I don't know, they're going to have a nuclear renaissance again, or you talk about that, but we're going back to nuclear is getting, seemed to me, getting put more and more back into the conversation, whereas it had started getting phased out of the conversation. I mean, France this week basically pushed back when they're talking about getting to 50% on nuclear. I think they pushed it back a decade. China has now made commitments first since 2016 on more approvals, and I heard they were talking about six or eight plants a year. Like the demand is going to go from being something that's really modest to something that's 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 more than that. And I, you know, the we can't we get out to 2025, we can't supply that now. So you're you know, this thing's going to have to get into gear at some point here to to address all that. And so those projects in Saskatchewan, there's no doubt about it, they're they're coming online at some point in time at scale. But they're 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 probably the, some of the projects that 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 there has to be there's going to be obviously more thinking on it about how that happens or what scale they come on. I mean, I can't imagine that there won't be end users involved in ultimately any ownership and things like that. But that's that's kind of natural. That's I mean, the, if you look at the existing big assets in Saskatchewan, there's partners. You know, there's partners that need the fuel that are involved. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, and, and what you said about the tensions that are building up in the market, there's certainly a lot of that going on. And, and 
there is a breaking point coming at some point in time uh, going forward. So how can investors reach out to Laramide for more information? Well, our, our lines are always open. I'm always happy to talk to investors. We're a very shareholder-friendly company. Um, you know, Laramide.com, we have a website. I think the, the current information is very current. We're trying to get out and be a little more active talking to people, which we haven't done for some time. So I'm delighted for the opportunity to talk to you today and just talk a little bit about it. I mean, we went a little bit quiet on the marketing front. That's because you could sense that the industry had cried wolf a little bit, you know, in terms of it's right around the corner. It's right around the corner. At some point, they start tuning you out. And so the good news is I think people are starting to tune back in and they're starting to get interested. I mean, we've had an awful lot of inbound interest in the last six months in what we're doing tells me we're that's another good sign that we're probably really getting getting closer because we're getting inbound we're not doing outreach and, and mark is there is there an email or or uh, can folks just contact you through the website yeah no i think you know mark at laramide.com m-a-r-c at laramide.com anytime happy to do that i you know i'm delighted to talk to shareholders you know we're a shareholder as i said we're a shareholder friendly company but we really like owners you know I, i'm a i much prefer shareholders to be owners than renters so particularly the guys, the long, the, the long only players and the people that are, that are getting on board to actually see this thing play out. Cause I do think, I do think you have a long, once this starts, you're going to have a decent long period of time on this cycle. Well, Mark, I really appreciate you sharing the information with us and coming on and talking about Laramide today. And we really look forward to watching the progress of the company. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Andrew, again, thanks for having me on.